needing to be a certain way in yourself when you're speaking, whether you're presenting, uh, whether you're in pitching or whatever. It's like, okay, can we see whatever information comes as our way as something interesting or useful that you can build on? Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition, drive, and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled, and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. How is everybody doing? This is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. My name is Joseph. Hope you're enjoying a lovely summer wherever abouts you happen to be. I am still here in Toronto, although I'm going to be moving to a smaller town in about a month. Just a quick update on me. This this show isn't about me, but it's you know nice to give you guys a little bit of a update on my current arc. I'm here today with uh, Matthew Matheson. Matt, before I even do question one, this is question negative one. How's how are things going? How are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm good. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me uh, on the show, as I say, or on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, good to be here. It's connected via the wires of the internet from the UK to Toronto. Yeah, so I'm well. Thank you. Yeah, the latency is impressive. We've we we, we spoke to somebody, uh, not not naming names. We did have somebody in Vancouver, and we were surprised how like poor the internet was between us here in Canada. So the marvels of the modern world are mostly miraculous, but still a little bit of work to do. I've been on a bit of a kick, and uh, one of these days I'm going to end, end this kick. But just out of curiosity, uh, have you had any standout trips lately? Vacations, excursions, adventures, anything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. My annual pilgrimage to the Glastonbury Festival of Performing Arts in Somerset, UK. I got back uh, three weeks ago, um, and that's always a highlight of my year. Um, The world's largest greenfield festival, six days. Beautiful, wonderful. And we had not a drop of rain, which (laughs) anybody who's listening knows Glastonbury, they'll know that's quite rare. I I didn't mention this uh, before we were recording, but I worked for a... A watch sales company for about a year and when they first brought us on we were servicing customers either in germany or in the uk so i would start my day and i would get a lot of calls from people like Where, where's my watch and then we had one person who said the fedex person dropped the watch off and didn't tell me and it's london so naturally it was rained out by the next day <laughs> that happens yes. that happens we get a lot of rain brilliant one, one, one more one just because i really appreciate this one other person uh, he was a he was a doctor and he was frustrated because the fedex didn't give him any information about him he, he's like i had to wait all day you didn't realize i could order a pizza and there's more information about where my pizza is and where my watch is and he's like, well, I guess I'll just be a prisoner in my own home. Little did he know he predicted COVID by about two months' time. So good job, doctor. <laughs> oh, gosh, brilliant. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I, my, uh, my, my partner is, uh, is half English. Uh, I, I, love, uh, I love your people. Looking forward to being able to visit at some point. But with all of that out of my system, let's, let's jump into this. So would you kindly start us off with you know, who you are? What brings you to the Impactful Coaching Podcast? What work are you doing in the space? Yeah, absolutely. So great to be here. So of course, my name is Matthew Matheson, and I go by the the brand name, I guess, is The Speaking Coach. I work in the space of uh, self-expression and confidence, and that shows up as working with people on public speaking, communication, authenticity, 
meeting culture and etiquette and ultimately helping people say what they need to say when it matters most. Um, I do that working with a range of people at one end, uh, for example, directors of large organizations, right the way across the board through to um, groups of uh, individuals um, crippled with anxiety around kind of being able to stand up and speak about something. So just a kind of like polished high end standing up in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And then there's the other end, which is like, okay, fielding that baseline. There's probably a 65% of my work is towards that um, kind of earlier stage, overcoming anxiety, foundational work, authenticity. Um, and then maybe 30 to 40% of my work is in that kind of more polished space, which is a little bit more my skills and performance and that kind of stuff. Well, anxiety is the key thing that I wanted to spend a good chunk of the conversation on today. So, but the other part of the prerequisite part of the podcast that I want to get through is, sorry, I don't want to get through like it's a chore, but this is just the part of the podcast that is the most consistent across all podcasting. So would you let us know what were you up to prior to this space and what were your core skills you were developing so that when you entered coaching, you had a unique approach to the space? Yeah. So it was a happy accident, I guess. So if you allow me a few minutes and I'll take us back, back on a little bit of a journey. So probably about 17 years ago, I'm going with now, I went to work for a consultancy based in Brighton and uh, it was digital media, social media, which is my background and I have a specialism in the digital sector as a result of this. Um, and over the course of working there, we were always a lot more famous for how we worked rather than what we did, even though what we did was good. Mm-hmm. And we had open book accounting, everybody was encouraged to follow their passions, et cetera, et cetera. And I was on this journey of kind of working for this company where I was encouraged to be autonomous and start to bring in the things that I'm passionate about, which was one piece of this. The second piece is I'd done an awful lot of work, partly triggered by a 10 day retreat in India a journey of self-discovery to have a look at, okay, what are my natural strengths and where are the spaces I've been operating in my life, uh, perhaps unconsciously? And that was very much around um, helping people speak up, helping people kind of like motivate them a little bit. And that was kind of leading out into relationships, da, 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 all kind of stuff. But I could see that was a space I occupied naturally. So that was thread number two. And then thread number three was I started studying uh, improvisation about 16 years ago as well. And that started as learning how to perform um, in the moment, theatrical comedy or drama on stage. But as I deepened my understanding of it, I realized that actually when I looked into the history for it, it was actually a teaching framework for creative self-expression and collaboration. So back at work, as we started doing more workshops for clients and more consultancy-based pieces, I started weaving in some of these improvisational coaching activities that I was learning, whilst also trying to channel that side of me that's like, oh, I can like consciously put this motivational side into, into my work. That started to go really well. Um, and then I remember the one day where it all crystallized into the first offering, uh, American Express uh, got in touch with one of our clients and they said, we're putting on a conference Um, have you got anybody in your consultancy who has any public speaking or stage experience? And then I was like, that's me. Um, That was probably about 14 years ago now, maybe maybe a little up, 12 years ago, something like that, I'm getting old, I forget. And that particular workshop was the very first iteration of the six-point speaker program that, that I now run. And then over the coming years, I developed more and more of these offerings around confidence, collaboration, expression. And the one thing that's tended to keep coming to me rather than what I needed to go out and market and get was support with communication, 
public speaking. Um, so then when I went freelance about eight years ago, I decided to just double down on that and make that the core offering that I have in its various ways as expressed now. Training, also doing a lot of training around, uh, so level two and a level three in counseling, practical skills and theories in order to kind of hold that space and understand that as well. And that's kind of brought me kind of to where I am today, really, which is working in this space of of um, authentic communication and expression. I appreciate the way you've separated them into sep- into d- different threads and how each one of these were developed at different times and then coalesce. And that convergence of these different threads, I think, gave the kind of clarity of mission and what it is that you want to be doing because so much of it had been uh, put together. And what I also find interesting was that I don't. I haven't asked uh, really any coach so far how much of it was a matter of realizing you wanted to do this and seeking it versus being positioned in your certain way and then having that work come to you, like you were describing that uh, American Express reached out to your company, needed some of the public speaking experience, and you were essentially primed for it. I, I, I don't know how many other coaches or other professionals in the space that you talk to but what i'd like to ask just just to see what happens is would you say that there are more people who were focused on doing their thing and found that there was a calling for it or would would you say you found more people were really interested in doing it and took that initiative on their own volition i'm going to split that into two two responses if that's okay the first is to uh, the kind of calling versus it just happening. Um, so quite clearly, after I came out of this retreat, I made it clear this is what I want to do. And this is me in my zone of genius, if you like, my happy place in flow. So there was a path of where I had to transition off some more traditional work as this grew up. Um, so it wasn't a case of everything just fell straight into my lap, I think, just to, to name that. But I kind of brought down some of my digital career stuff around project management and scaled up the coaching and transitioned. The second question, if I hear that correctly, was like, as a general rule of thumb, what do I see out there in the world with people who who kind of it all comes together versus those who kind of actively make a decision and pursue it? Is that right? Yeah, that's great. It's actually worded better than I did. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem at all. It's just my own reflection to be, to be clear. So as most coaches, I'm sure, listening to this are, we're quite into community. And we know a lot of people, a lot of coaches, uh, clients tend to know a lot of the coaches, coaches work together, et cetera, et cetera. So from my frame of reference, what I see, and that's just my bubble, if you like, um, there's an awful lot of people who are making a conscious decision to move in this direction rather than it being something that's just happened. But usually with those that I've worked with and I do an awful lot of peer coaching courses and my own training, and it's all led by needs. And it's like a lot of, what I hear is people have realized what their own needs are and then are looking at how they can express that through their work. And very often coaching of some sort is a calling to that. Um, so it's actually, I would say, if you imagine you've got your Venn diagram, you've got your calling mm-hmm. and then you've got your, oh, actually, no, I consciously decided to do it. I think it's a little bit of overlap of the two. Um, one usually feeds the other once you start digging into the inside and going, okay, where's this coming from? Because the majority of time people who are, and I put this in inverted commas, called to help other people usually have something in their history that causes them to show up like that. Um, And moving in for me personally, because I've had stuff there, 
me personally, that gave me being able to do it professionally then enabled me to almost like have a bit of a, a control over how and where that shows up. Historically, people pleasing, you know, as a defense mechanism for stuff. Uh, but now it's like I can consciously channel that professionally through my work and help people and know when I switch off from that, I can just be me. Right, right. Uh, that last point, just about the about distinguishing when you're in your professional state and are uh, acting on your services versus just living your life and interacting with people. And I can see that there is a rather potentially unintentional blending of those two. Whereas, and just to use an example of an industry that I know little about, but finding out that say someone is a doctor and then, hey, can you, ha can you have a look at something on the back of my neck? And it's, you know, there's a very clear distinction between when you're talking to him about life and then when you're seeking his professional services. And it's, and it's obvious when you're doing it because he's a doctor is, is what he does. So has that been a, a challenge at, at times where you realize you've, uh oh, I've transitioned to my professional self in the social setting because it's just what I do this is how I help people. So uh, any work that you've had to do just to make sure that it's clear, perhaps setting boundaries is clear when I'm being Matthew versus being Matthew Matheson, professional coach? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, so there's a few responses I think I can probably share with this. The first is that actually, you know, I try to embody as much as possible and help my clients with congruence, which is like you are who you are consistently. So that's the first thing just to, to name there. So there's consistency and it's not like, oh, this person is a character that they're not really in real life. So that I've always wanted to avoid. And that's what I always encourage my clients to avoid. It's like, don't try and be like that person. It's like, let's come back to you and look at what that looks like. To pull the specific point of uh, managing boundaries and moving, I'll, I'll kind of comment this differently. It's like, do I slip into coach mode socially sometimes? Maybe is another way to put that. Um, yeah, that does happen sometimes, you know. But that's okay. And within that mode, it's definitely an informal, supportive coach mode if that makes sense rather than a professional formal committed coach mode you know and then the final response on that what work have i had to do to manage this it's less about a boundary between professional coach mode and social it's actually been more about um, me as an individual um how do i ensure that my uh, my boundaries are really clear and that any help i give someone is um conscious support and help rather than um which many many years ago it might have been actually some you know baked in need for validation based on effort or something and what have i done from that i've done loads of personal counseling i've been on leadership retreats um i've done lots of stuff <laughs> in in that areas with coaches and therapists and bits and pieces to kind of really develop that self-awareness so we kind of go okay what what mode am i sitting in here am i being mindful about how i'm operating with this person so that i can get the best for me and this person rather than just give 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 and i hear it described in different ways uh, in in the media space we people talk about like wearing different hats it's just one way to have a even if it's you're not actually literally wearing a hat in fact, no one's ever wearing a hat when they say it, but the having that visual distinction where, okay, this is my producer's hat. Okay, I'm taking that off. Now I'm putting it on my I'm just a person hat. And some, sometimes I find that even just the simplest approaches and, and using that abstract are a way to just create a, a sense of physicality without actually there being something physical. And, and you mentioned um, that you had done improv, and I had done improv classes uh, too here in Toronto, so I want to... Uh, talk about that for, for a little bit but one of the things that i identified just in terms of say 
performance or writing or, or in comedy is that I started having a better grip on how I do my material bait when I started referring to everything as cards. So for instance, I'm Italian on both sides, right? So I have no problem playing the Italian card. I get to play it. There's very little controversy. There are other lines of jokes that I could play that card, but it'd be very difficult for me to do if I'm talking about a race that I am not a gender, that I am not um, a, a something political that I'm not or topical that I'm not familiar with. So that's just an example of me figuring out like, okay, I've played card games. I, I know what a card game looks like. So I'm just creating this abstract in my head to help make things more clear. So I just, I just find that's an interesting uh, subject. But what I want to do is uh, touch briefly on the improv stuff because I'm just curious about what were some of the fundamentals that they taught over there and if it's any different here in the West. Uh, and then we're, we're working our way into the uh, anxiety part of this conversation. So here in, in the West, the, the basic rule of improv is uh, yes and. It's always about receiving the information and then building on it somehow. And for those of you who don't know what that might look like, so let's just, here, an example is two people show up into a room and they want to paint a wall. And one person says, all right, I got the, I got the cow's blood. And the guy says, what, what? We're not painting the wall with cow's blood. Immediately the scene is over because now you just have people having a very reasonable argument and there's nothing funny. Or the person says, okay, well, I promised you I'd uh, I'd listen to you. I know we've rejected a lot of your ideas in the past, so I guess we're going to go ahead and do this. Okay, great, 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 great. Um, so if we run out, I got another cow in the back and the scene just gets worse and worse and worse because of the, of the S ending. So that's just the difference between how an improv scene would work versus if you just block and then you can't create anything. So that's just how we were taught. Was was it any different uh, in, in the UK? Obviously the senses of humor are a little bit different. I'm a big fan of David Mitchell. I've always loved his, his style of humor. Um, but it seems to be very um, specific and refined and deliberate. So what, uh, what experience from improv stuck out to you? Yeah, so I spent probably two or three years studying improvisation in the UK, starting with short form improv, which is the more games-based thing mm. popularized by shows like Whose Line It Is Anyway and some of the SNL that sketches huge, and stuff. huge, imprint on me growing up, Whose Line yeah. I mean, I watched the Canadian version of it, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. And then uh, I moved into studying long form improvisation, which is more along the lines of on a stage, you'd have a single word suggestion, and then a group of you would create a 45 minute improvised play. Um, and then I actually came out to Chicago and studied it for six weeks at um, IO, which was the kind of kind of culmination of my studies. And yeah, absolutely. The, the principles that stood out for me. So what I love about improvisation where I'm at now is, so I've performed all sorts of coach troops, but I'm not really in that space now. I now use it as a philosophy to underpin the coaching that I do. Um, and the principles really that for me, suddenly I kind of had the light bulb moment when working with teams. I was like, gosh, imagine applying some of these principles for teams and then individually as public speakers to find your voice. And if we take your the yes and concept, which you know I completely agree with, deconstruct that a little bit into a philosophy for just responding to what comes to you generally rather than in a comedy scene. It's like, okay, if you are needing to be a certain way in yourself when you're speaking, whether you're presenting, uh, whether you're in pitching or whatever. It's like, okay, can we see whatever information comes as our way as something interesting or useful that you can build on? So if you're standing on stage in front of 150 people and you suddenly get told you've got five minutes cut off, 
are you seeing that as a personal block and you can't move forward or can you reframe how you see that? It's like, oh, okay, right. How can I use the fact that there's something different here that I can play with and kind of like searching for the information and what comes up rather than um, seeing it as problems. So being curious, being present in the moment. So the most effective scenes go word by word and line by line rather than scene by scene. And the most conscious communication is when we can really slow down and think about each word we're saying rather than, you know, what a lot of other coaches say. It's like, no, aim for the ending. And it's like, no, don't aim for the ending. Like control it all the way through. The one that I love the most, just trust that the right thing will come up in the moment. Trust that from your body it will emerge. You know, and that takes a while. One of the things that comes up the most when I'm coaching clients is how I can get them out of their head and down into their body. Mm-hmm. And they can like, ah, 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 stop. Okay, let's just go. Go, 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 go. And just let it come from here rather than up here. And then all of a sudden it flows and it's beautiful. And then you see the thinking coming back in and it slows down. And it's, it's like, no, just trust that it'll emerge if you prepare in the right way, flexible. And then the final thing, the most powerful improv performances I've seen and a lot of this, if you've heard of them, are created by or popularized by um, a two-prof group called TJ and Dave, who are widely regarded as the world's best improvisers. Mm-hmm. It's about speaking from a place of authenticity, being human, being realistic, embracing the emotions and your senses, and really speaking from that place. Um, and all those principles, just such a solid foundation to, to coach and to kind of find your authentic voice from. So I realized that was a bit of a long response, but that's my uh, experience and how it informs what I do. I, I appreciate it. That's why we have the hour. I want to give people a chance to uh, to think out loud and, and work their way through it. So I, I appreciate all of that. And then I, I want to add one thing to this, and then I promise we're going to do the anxiety talk. So when you said that receiving the information sometimes is just about reframing it and how can I build off of this, even if it is something inherently negative. And this is a through line that I've been working on for quite a while because I was you know, basically raised on the internet and there's certainly a lot of negative information that comes up on the internet. And I learned that, okay, well, I learned the theory. Implementation has been a whole other challenge, but my theory is you extract the antidote from the venom. And this is scientifically true. I remember when they had a spider exhibit here at the Royal Ontario Museum, although it was a scorpion they were extracting the venom from, it was you know, close enough, and they're extracting the antidote from it so that if you're bitten by that scorpion, that is what you need to save your life. And same goes for vaccines. Obviously, a vaccine is a bit of a controversial word, so we're not going to dig into that, but the methodology is typically they pull the virus and then they create the vaccine based off of that so that your body can build up the immunity to it. That's all I'm going to say about that. And what I found was even some of the most you know, ruthless or mean things that people are saying, there's, if you try, you could find a nugget of something useful for you later on. And not that I would ever want to encourage that kind of behavior, but it's more a matter of circumstances. This is just how people are going to behave. I might as well pull something useful out of it because... I can't forget that this happened. I can't block it out of my mind. So I might as well make the best of it. I would like to get your take on that. Does that resonate with you? Or do you feel that there's a side of this that's missing? I think my thoughts on that is there's always something that can be taken from anything. Mm -hmm. Some things is hard to take something consciously positive from it. But I think to hold a conscious space that's curious, whatever it is you're presented with, is the best place to be because then we can separate 
and this speaks a little bit to anxiety and triggers and this, that, and the other, is, is we can kind of separate the reaction to something and then your conscious response. And I think that's like one of the, the, the biggest personal growth things for me. And, and as anybody goes through, is going through as they grow up, it's like to be able to separate that snap judgment or that immediate reaction, put a bit of a pause between it and kind of go, okay, this thing that I'm seeing, this thing I've read on the internet, all this behavior that's come my way from someone, or this thought that's come up in my head that judges me separately. Mm-hmm. Do I just default into a reaction to it? Or can I go, actually, let's give it a bit of distance and see it for what it is and then choose how you want to respond to it. And if you have this viral information coming through on the internet to you, and some of it's very negative, so your choice might be, oh, I wonder how it is for me to see this. You could ask that of yourself. Or you could say, okay, I wonder where this has come from. Or I wonder who's created it. Or is it serving me to have this in my feed? If not, what am I going to do about it? You know, do I or do not want to share this? What am I contributing to? And being curious about it. Mm-hmm. And then I think that puts you in a space where you have agency um, over what you take from something. And the more you practice that consciously, the more it starts to move into a space where it becomes second nature, that you just naturally respond that way to things. And then that can then reduce the anxiety around things that will trigger you. Might be a nice segue into what we're coming into now mm-hmm. and, and help you be a bit more conscious around how you respond to things. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, let's uh, take this transition and and roll with it. it so I think everyone innately knows what anxiety is, but I also think that anxiety in say 2015 is probably not the same kind of anxiety that people might be experiencing in 2023. So uh, what would you say is the up-to-date definition of anxiety as we're encountering it on a day like today? I guess most commonly it's defined as a feeling of worry or concern or fear. So I know when I've spoken to therapists about this, and even my own experience, I said, oh, I'm anxious about something. They kind of go, okay, anxious is more like a feeling. What's what's the emotion behind it? You know, so it's usually rooted in an emotion or something. But anxiety can hark back or look forward into the future. So if we think we have three kind of mindsets uh, when we're thinking about our brain state, and we have the past, our thought processes that speak to um, either nostalgia or regret, Generally speaking, our thoughts go into that pot. We have this nice present space in the middle where we're just present. I'm on this podcast. I'm speaking to you. That's where my head's at at the moment. And then we have the future, which shows up as um, anxiety, you know, concern um, or hope. You know, essentially, it is kind of two, two things. And anxiety tends to be not so much when you're in this present moment, uh, nearly always when you're worrying about something in the future or concerned about something in the past. You know, and then that manifests as um, a physical feeling as well as a uh, mental feeling um, of, of unease. So the first part of this, and I'm putting myself on the spot because I want to, I, I like to be transparent about this. And I like, and if I don't be transparent, if I don't put in, given my own input, then you people might, you might as well just be uh, talking to an AI or just have the questions. I'm here. It's, it's part of the, the programming. So. I do know that I like, I'm still stressing out and, and I think that's always just going to be the case, but the, the overall anxiety that I feel actually seems to be diminished and I'm actually shocked by that because I don't, I I think for me, what I was most anxious about was the idea of being 
independent or self-reliant and living on my own for for the last three years being able to budget out being able to uh, not just make the money but make it through doing my my uh, my line of work alleviate a lot of that anxiety and then the other side of it was the fact that Toronto is just bloody expensive and so it could have it also alleviated my anxiety just knowing that well you know what most people can't afford to live in this city so it's not like I'm there's only so much that I can only be so hard on myself the part that still gets me and I'm thinking about this as you've described your distinction between past, present and future is that the things in the past to me still feel like they're my future. So if for instance, I'm, I'm entering a new social group and I feel like, and I'm being uh, made fun of, I observe if everyone is being made fun of, cause that's an environment that I can live with. But if I'm observing that some person is being singled out and is maybe being the butt of the jokes more often, or if that's happening to me, that's when my anxiety really starts to raise. It's because it's reminding me of like, okay, I've dealt with this in the past and I'm not going to gaslight myself and think this isn't happening again. It, it is happening again. I, I know these patterns now. So I'm, I'm thinking my way through this. So I don't have like a question written down specifically. So what I'm trying to get at here is, Do you have experience, whether yourself or even with the clients that you work with, where things that are from people's past are manifesting as fears in the future? Yes. And if I bring this to... So thank you for sharing that. Of course. Um, Thank you for giving me the chance. What I see quite often is that there's usually been an event or a series of events that have taken place in somebody's past that then brings about um, essentially like a defense mechanism, um, you know, that then stops them from acting a certain way or causes them to act a certain way in order to avoid something that they need to confront. Um, And that can often show up as anxiety. So one of the most common ones that I see around not speaking up is that at some point they have been, for to use your phrase, like the butt of a joke, yeah, which has then silenced them a little bit. It's kind of so, well, I'm not going to stand up and be myself here because what happens is when I'm vulnerable, I become the butt of a joke. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what that does is to use the language that you've used there, that imprints a pattern. Okay. And what that means is that they then feel that when it happens around them because you see that and you subconsciously reconnect for that, uh, that. I guess you could call it like trauma, essentially, you know, that memory. If trauma is anything that changes behavior and experience that changes behavior negatively, more painfully, but also where it becomes even more problematic because actually that's a place for awareness sometimes. Okay, I can see that takes me back to that. You've become aware of that. Where it can be more problematic is when that link hasn't been made and the client, for example, just quite simply has a fear of speaking up and they can't see why. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not going to stand up in front of my boss. I don't know why I'm just really scared. You know, and it's like, okay, so that's the point at which sometimes the work is as much as the kind of like skills and practice and all this really important stuff as well. It's like, okay, let's just take a second to go. How far back has this been happening? Oh, there's this thing that happened at this point. Okay, so I can see what that is. Then once that link is made, you then have a link that can start to be strengthened. And my belief is once you've done that, you don't actually need to focus on that too much. You just need to understand where it comes from. And then it's about starting to... So let's use the metaphor of a filing cabinet, yeah? And you've got all these different filing cabinets in your brain. 
And then you've got your speaking up when you're vulnerable filing cabinet and all these situations. And each boulder within that filing cabinet um, is a situation where you've tried to do that. And for quite some time, you've got quite a lot of folders that basically say, if I speak up, uh, I'm going to get shot down or the butt of a joke, so I'm not going to do it. And next time you try to do it, that same reference comes in, so you don't do it. Next time you do it, same reference, and you fill up that filing cabinet. And then there's not much space. You fill that filing cabinet up to the top, and each new memory that comes in drops the one out the back. And it just moves from back to forward, but it's all the same. Once you become aware of what's that happened, then you start to move into a space of consciousness where you can say, okay, well, what if I try and do something a little bit differently? And then through the help of skills, coaching, um, personal development, whatever it is, you can say, okay, I'm just going to try it in this one small little environment and see how it feels. And you get a win. And then, oh, that's a different color folder going into the front of your filing cabinet. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I've got a template. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Oh, might not go so well, but we're going to try it again. And then you start to bring in the different colored folders and those black folders that were there before start dropping out the back of the filing cabinet until you've replaced those memories and those neuro pathways, if you like, with the more positive experiences. So in short, yes, stuff that happens to us in our past, and this is well documented in all sorts of psychological theories, inform how we behave and often our aversion or our exhortations around certain behaviors at one point were a defense mechanism that served as well but then they hold us back as we get older mm-hmm. well i appreciate your expertise on it and there's a few things that i've written down to uh, follow up on and and the reason why i i wanted to uh, talk about this uh a is because therapy is expensive joking but not it's, it, but also <laughs> it's like I think it's important for people to understand that when we're stuck in the past or we're thinking about previous memories, yes, there's an element of rumination, but I I genuinely think, and, and a lot of what you're discussing um, supports this, is that I don't think we think about the past just because it's it's the past. The, the past is a indicator of our future. There's a certain quote that you know if you're ignorant of your past, you're just going to repeat it. Uh, and I'm not going to give credit who, who, to who said it because you know, n- n- no thanks. So th- that's why I, I, I want to bring it up is because I, I think that the time that we have already spent is still in play and it is still an important part of our lived experience. And uh, I and I appreciate your your usage of the filing cabinet m- metaphor. Just because it's a matter of yes, there's a li- there's limits to how much we can store in here. Our brains do not have an infinite amount of space, so there are there are ways that we can start removing old files, old documents, and fr- frankly, content inside of our own mind that's just not worth having anymore. the The question that I have on that, however, is imprintation. I think the younger the we are, the more things are imprinted. So I think some of these documents can either be much more dense or be much more difficult to remove or almost feel like if I remove this, I'm actually removing a bunch of other things that I don't want to remove. So is there any uh, experience or um, or knowledge you can share on just how memories can be weighed differently? And if there are memories that are stronger than others and might be harder to remove if there's other measures you can take to uh, counter countervail that be able to do something a little bit more 
maybe intense or um, more exacting or more difficult to uh, hack away at some of those files that are a little bit more stubborn, having a little bit of a harder time getting out of the filing cabinet? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. I suppose just to augment the the metaphor a little bit here, I guess, you know, what I'm not suggesting is we want to eradicate these memories. Sure. Um, I think what I'm saying is that we want to start replacing them with new behaviors. Two things come up for me. So the first is rather than replacing the entire filing cabinet, maybe what we want to do is just kind of like take those stronger memories that are prominent and holding us back from putting in a new thing and just kind of put them at the back. So they become a little bit more historical. Mm-hmm. It's like you go into a company's accounts, open that filing cabinet, you've got all your new stuff at the front, which is the current state of health, but then you've got the history behind it. But the first thing people look at and the first thing that they operate from is where you are now at the front. Okay. So we want a healthy front of the filing cabinet, I guess is what we're saying. The second thing is um, with regards to all, oh, some of them are stubborn and, and this, that, and the other, and how do you know which ones? I think the magic there in what you say is in the how do you know part, not actually knowing where your files are. Yeah, and just to the problem, I've lost something, I can't remember what it is, where is it? Mm-hmm. And you've got to go looking for it. Yeah, that's the first thing. If there's a problem, if there's anxiety, if there's fear, if there's something that you cannot put a finger on, then that requires a bit of searching. You know, it's like, you know, I remember someone once talking to me about the idea of a, a stinky fish metaphor. Um, particularly within communications, the idea of, okay, so, you know, if there's something not being said or if there's something that hasn't been found, it will show up eventually. So if somebody drops a kipper, you know, a fish down the back of your sofa, and you sit down, you're not going to smell it, not straight away. Mm. Give it a few hours, you might pick up on something. Right. Give it a day, it get a little bit worse. Leave it longer and longer, it gets the whole room starts smelling. And before you do it, you have to throw that sofa out. You know, and, and the way I see it is like using uh, your body and your mind and your brain and every, your whole being. Like if you're starting to smell something, it's not right. And that could be anxiety constantly showing up in certain areas. And you've got a fish to go and look for. And that fish might be down the back of the filing cabinet or it might be in your childhood or it might be something through work or it could be something from school. Um, or it could be something that happened six months ago in a job interview. Mm-hmm. You know, but until you've kind of gone, okay, where has this root emerged from it's quite then hard to go okay okay right you know what what do we do next and i think that speaks to your point of like where you come from is very much i won't say dictating but at least informs where you're going to the point that you can have more clarity around your future journey if you understand what you've been through to get there mm-hmm. okay there's definitely a lot that I, I appreciate there i mean for one it's not a matter of deleting the files because it's it's our lived experience it's more about archiving it for historical reference because one of the things that we said earlier is that if you approach it from a state of curiosity, this information might actually be useful. And you never know, 10 years go by, that information might be re-examined in a new light that could actually lead to new positive outcomes. So I I completely agree that it's not about um, putting it in the recycling bin and then emptying the recycling bin. It is about proper storage and you know removing some uh, measure of overlap but for the most part having i think also just having some self-respect for this is our lived experience but we're gonna we're the ones in control we're the ones that are deciding what's relevant what's going to be at the front and what's going to be in the back and i should also point out too interestingly that what i mentioned before about uh, cards and being able to 
use abstract to visualize things physically the the idea of the filing cabinet is just another addition to that so i appreciate being able to continue on with that thread um there was a word that you used that i was planning on asking about uh, which was uh, vulnerability and to me vulnerability is the root of a lot of this because if people are willing to there's a better way to say this i would do that but i can't so i'm gonna go with this exposing our weaknesses or exposing our our flaws or our humanity and that has been the root of where some of my issues have come from in the past i remember in college i was a little too vulnerable a little too quickly and so i had to work my way up the the social ladder um, by the end of year two i had gained most people's respect because they had seen my writing and they thought oh well oh we're wrong. He was actually really good at this. So it was, it was a journey and I don't regret any of it. Uh, but I definitely had to start from the bottom and, and work my way up because I was too vulnerable too quickly. And so I would love to give your take on vulnerability as, uh, as it relates to this. Is there such a thing as being over vulnerable, over sharing? Is it a, uh, have you identified that as a client issue where people are just maybe exposing themselves a little bit too much or exposing themselves maybe not quite enough or just what's the, re- the healthy relationship with vulnerability that, we're, that you're being able to help clients out with? As a general rule of thumb, I believe that vulnerability is a strength when deployed consciously and with enough personal resilience in order to be okay in that space around people. Is oversharing a problem with my clients? Uh, as a general rule of thumb, no, um, because most of them are um, in a position where actually they feel like they're going to be judged so they don't share enough. They don't share enough of themselves, they don't share enough of their message, and they worry too much around what the audience wants or what other people will think about them. So that then closes them down. So no, that's not a problem um, with clients. When can it be a problem? just to kind of piggyback on that and add a, another flavor to this. Sure. I think, again, it comes back to being conscious in your communication and having some sort of awareness and insight into who it is you're speaking to and what's appropriate with these people so that you a, uh, protect any boundaries that you may have and don't open yourself up to potential bruising because you know you're exposing yourself and you're being vulnerable and also being mindful um not taking responsibility for but also being mindful of okay who is this i'm speaking to and is this useful for them mm-hmm. um you know what need is this serving for me to uh, overshare or to to give i have a couple of people that i know that they feel like oh i overshare way too much i'm like that's a that's what you call like a generalization you know and it's like well actually how do you speak? When do you speak like this? And who do you speak like this to? Usually the idea of oversharing, I think, is more a critique people have on themselves rather than something that we place on other people quite often. Because actually, if I look at my friends, sets, family, et cetera, et cetera, are there dozens thinking that we all really, in one respect, know thousands of people? Are we constantly going around going, oh, that's an overshare, or that's an overshare, or that's an overshare? Mm-hmm. I know I don't. You know, and actually it, it warms my cockles when someone drops down a gear and opens up a little bit more because it's like, ah, the human being. Mm-hmm. So I think oversharing is problematic in that it tends to be a critique of the self rather than a re- reflection of reality. I, I appreciate that quite a bit. So uh, just because uh, for time we've got, I've still got you for some time, but uh, not too much. And if you don't mind, I'm probably going to keep you a little bit over the hour mark. That's fine. 
So just to, I, I have one more angle that I want to um, come at the anxiety discussion, and then we'll we'll start going to some wind down questions. Just you know, some some stuff a little more on the on the fun side, just so that we can you know, taking some time to decompress here. So this is another personal theory. And I actually don't know if this is specifically anxiety. This might be a, a different issue, but I'm sure that there's an overlap anyways. So every so often, and by that, I mean, every time I leave my place without exception, I have that moment where I'm thinking, where's my keys? Where's my phone? Did I turn off the stove? And, or there's times where I'm on my way home from somewhere and I'm looking through my, my bag going, where's my phone? And and I go through it and I'm starting to like spin this narrative in my head of like, okay, well, if I can't find it, I got to cancel right away. I got to make a list of all the people and this is going to be nightmare. Oh, there it is. Oh my God, I found my phone. And that relief just like sweeps over and it feels good. And it made me think that some of our, these, these maybe smaller stressors are a form of addiction where we're, and we're legitimately doing this. We're not artificially doing this. We are genuinely experiencing this stress or this anxiety or this fear. So then that way we can experience the relief associated with it. Every time I, I, I tap my pocket for my keys, it's panic relief. It's very quick, but it, it happens every time. So have you spent any time with the science to any of this? Has this crossed your radar? Perhaps any personal experiences with this? Or do you feel like there's an addictive nature to any of this? So I will be clear and not profess to be an academic in this sure, space sure. at all. I've read a little bit. I've done a, a few studies and various qualifications in counseling, but it's certainly not something I'm an expert in. And it's a really interesting question. Um, Thank you. So my thoughts. So what I can say is like behaviors can be learned um, and the kind of like, um, what's the words? What's the language? you know, like the punishment reward metaphor, which is almost like the dopamine kind of cycle that you hit with, with social media, for example. It's like, like, dislike, like, dislike, check, got, check, got, check, got, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a physical manifestation of that. Like, where's the keys, got the keys, where's the keys, got the keys, you know? And what I do know is that behaviors can replicate. Um, And when certain hormones are triggered that feel good, you know, of course, yes, you can, you know, we want to reap them again, if that makes sense. Coming at it from a slightly different point of view, if we talk about um, what I would call maybe like everyday triggers, you know, the, the kind of thing that kind of like gets you and then you resolve it quickly and it, it gets you or like, oh, you get a bit annoyed about the plastic bag shaking and everything's a bit rush, 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 panic. I think some of that actually, that kind of always checking, always looking for a little bit of danger is actually driven a lot more by the society we live in and the technology that we use nowadays. And a lot of that has been evidence and you can Google that. Uh, We're a lot faster. We don't get bored anymore. We don't slow down. We don't take our time. We're driven to deadlines and milestones and told everything should be now, 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 Mm -hmm. which is not really an optimal state to operate in because we have higher cortisol levels. Our adrenaline is higher. And all you have to do is look at the work of like Gabo Mate, all sorts of people out there now. They show that actually like a heightened state of adrenaline persistently, i.e. stress, actually has a negative impact on your physiology as well, you know. Um, so yes, can it be, I, so my hunch, 
without being an academic in this space is that actually the society and the culture that we live in um, as well as our upbringing and personalities lead to these kind of behaviors being a little bit more triggering and compulsive than they might normally be and the um, antidote if you like to use your language for that is actually is to start slowing down a little bit realize that less is more get a meditation practice and start coming a bit more down to the ground rather than the ping, 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 ping up here. Mm. As human beings, we operate with our bodies, but it's interesting how all the chaos happens up here in our heads. Yeah, I think it's, it speaks to the fragility of uh, society as well, because cause just losing a phone would be such a, uh, a detriment to my ability to function on a day-to-day, not just for, uh, for joy or for pleasure, but also for, for contact and for uh, keeping things running smoothly. So... I think a, a lot of the fear comes from that, and it's just re, you know realizing you're you're only on this planet for so long, and there are th- things that we need to do to make each day precious. And I remember about two years ago, I first saw the term "go and touch grass," and I echoed that sentiment because I thought, well, of course, yeah, go go into nature. And then "touch grass" ended up becoming memeified, and now it's kind of a joke to say "touch grass." I'm like, man, I was so I was I was legitimately into that, and it's still true. But it is just funny to see how these things are um, put into the cycle of society, spun around by everyone's interpretation, and it's and spits out a meme uh, of all things. So I just uh, had to, I just amuse myself with that. So with that, we're gonna start um, winding this down. So the last couple of questions, really just about how are things going in terms of your your, your practice and uh, where you see yourself going from here. So in terms of a promotion whether that's on social media or on your website, um, are you facing any specific challenges with getting your message out or how you feel you would like to position yourself in, in the future, position yourself differently, try to find new channels to reach out to people? So I'm fairly comfortable with my marketing and the brand and and the people I work with at the moment. I feel blessed, you know, that that seems, I seem to be attracting the right people to work with me, which is nice. I am pivoting how I work. Um, so as well as offering the group coaching, one-to-one coaching, the training, I'm now moving into coming down a level deeper and offering like holistic transformations to connect with authenticity rather than just your voice. And I'm starting that by actually running my first retreat um this november in the uk three days kind of full holistic approach to kind of tap into your authenticity and then look at how you can express that in the world um and that's that's probably the area that i'm focusing most on as far as like business goes it's like moving into this space of running retreats where we get to really deep dive into this work rather than the ongoing coaching programs or as well as the ongoing coaching programs does the retreat echo any of what you had uh, experienced when you went to your um, uh, retreat in India? Very lightly. It's not something I've consciously drawn on. That was part of my experience. This is something I've consciously designed to come down from helping people find their voice to helping people find their authentic self and then look at how they can express that. So it's a similar it's a similar model, if that makes sense, or mm-hmm. sorry, not model, a similar work in a similar space. It's a transformation retreat. But it's a good connection. I hadn't really drawn the parallels between the two. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's why I got notes. I got 
I, mm. I got my Google document for the stuff that's prepared and then I write things down as I go because I, I, I always notice that there's threads that can be established in the beginning and that might come back to like what I was saying with physical and abstract. So uh, there's that. I'll pat myself on the back for that one. So uh, this I, I guess this will be the last question and then I'll do a wrap-up question. Um, on your Twitter profile, you said you're the creator of the Six Point Speaker Program, which... We didn't get into, but I, I I imagine that people can head on to the web your your web presence and learn more about it. Uh, but then there's also the Church of Fail. So I I sense a lot of uh, humor in in the creation of that. What's is there is there a story to that or like what's the yeah what's, what's the purpose <laughs> of the Church? We of could Fail? do we could do we could do an hour on that. I've done <laughs> whole sessions. I did Virgin.com podcast on the Church of Fail. Gosh, so I'm going to try and give this to you in a succinct couple of minutes. Um, I created the Church of Fail about 11 or 12 years ago, and it's a colliding of the world of improvisation, stagecraft, and business um, to help people, uh, particularly within organizations, but anyone can do it, reframe their relationship to failure. The idea being that you set up a space in an office, which just could be a series of seats with a place to stand up front looking out that represents um, a theater or a stage or a church, you know, and one by one, someone from the congregation or company or whatever you want to call it steps forward and answers three questions. What did I fail at? How did I cope with it? And what would I do differently? And they share something that they feel they failed at. Um, and then once complete, they get a huge round of applause from everybody who's seated. Uh, and they're not allowed to leave until that round of applause finishes. And this speaks to pot number one, pulling out the vulnerability piece. So that creates a real imprint on that, but it's a supportive, vulnerable environment. You're not the butt of a joke. You are given a celebration. Mm-hmm. Number two, there's learning. So what did what I do differently? How did I cope with it? That impressed on the same vulnerability space makes a far uh, visceral learning experience. Um, and number three, you could share as big or as little. So I've heard people talk about when they've jammed the photocopier, someone whose button popped off on a train. Whereas I've also heard a leader of a tech company, a very famous tech company, uh, open his heart and talk about how his career uh, had cost him his marriage. You know, so right away across the thing, I'm running one at the uh, Happy Startup Summer Camp in September this year, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. So if anyone wants to read about it, just Google it. You'll see it all over the shop. Um, But that's what it is in a nutshell. It's a cultural totem to install reflective learning. I can I can see how there's a, a lot that can uh, fill an hour with uh, those kinds of stories and what impact that has had. But uh, I think it's I think it's great. So um, with that, I, I've I'm really thankful for your time today. I knew this was going to be a good uh, conversation about anxiety because it's one of those subjects that everyone has a unique take on, and I think everyone can contribute to it. Obviously, not I'm not an expert on it, but I I have my particular. Joseph Ayani experience and no one else is going to have. And so I think it's important for people to contribute to these kinds of discussions, if for no other reason than to provide data so that the experts can help. Um, so before I, I, I fully and truly um, let you go for the day, just because we, you know, we touched on a lot of threads, I just want to give you a chance. Did you have any um, last minute reactions or responses or anything that you wanted to touch on throughout the discussion? Just, just in case there's something that um, has been uh, kind of in the in, in your prefrontal cortex you wanted to make sure was addressed? No, it's been, nothing comes up as, oh, we've missed this. 
we didn't talk about the myth of rapport, but maybe we can leave that as a question mark for people to uh, explore at another time. Mm, okay. Yeah. I, I, I. Yeah. There was. There is no doubt that there was going to be more to talk about than we had time for today. But that's sort of my my philosophy on this: is that you always want to run out of time. You never want to run out of questions. And so, agreed. Yeah. All right. So with that, the the last thing to do is let the audience know how they may go about getting in touch with you and learning a little bit more about what you do. Great. So the single best place to go to is my website, which is www.thespeakingcoach.co.uk. And that has the podcast that I've guest on, free training materials, the way I coach, my products, a whole lot there, information about me, testimonials, communities a lot so if you want to find me come there that's probably the single best place okay and then my audience just in case this is your first episode um it is the impactful coaching podcast you can email me joseph at impactful coaching podcast.com it is spelt the way you think and with that thank you all for your i was about to say patronage but we're not necessarily for profit but um matthew in specifically thank you for your time and your expertise i was uh, glad we had this talk and i like to think that an hour ago i was a different person and that's the sort of one of the goals that i want to have when i do these wonderful it's been really great like a great conversation um thanks for having me absolutely absolutely all right, everybody, that has been the Impactful Coaching Podcast. There are many, many, many things that you can strive for, but it is our resolution to make sure that what it is you do, you do it with impact. 